Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. It's, it's awesome yeah. that they are investing in people, not the product. Because like I said, ideas yeah. change. So as long as you prove that you're worthy of the investment as a person. Yeah. Because your company and your careers are as successful as you are. Yeah. That's why I think like nutrition, health, fitness matters because I think more and more uh, successful entrepreneurs or company owners, mm-hmm. they're starting to invest more in their health and their sleep by yeah. hiring like personal coach because they realize your longevity is going to directly cause the longevity of a company. Yeah. If you're fucking dead and you're 45 by burnout and overworking, yeah. your company's dead too. Yeah. Like, who are you going to give that to your son? So, I think for a lot of things, including in this case, fitness, we kind of gloss over this and Aiden and I, we talked about this a lot, is the act of doing, right? It's active versus inaction. And like you talked about, most people predicate their life based on judgment of fear from other people. So, I remember when I first started working out, I think it was my freshman in high school, when I was a varsity football team, I'm pretty sure I, I benched the bar with five pounds on each side, which is only 55 pounds, right? Which is a minuscule amount. And if you go to like a big public gym, you see people like ripping like 315s, like 10 reps, 20 reps, like people doing 225s. And there is me who just benching like 25 pounds on the side or five pounds. And you get scared because like you, see, you think people are judging you, you're weak, improper forms or all these arbitrary fears that you have self-generated and i think it's very important to conquer that fear somehow by any means and just to start working out because i always get frustrated by stagnation i was like oh man my chest is my weak link and my chest strength hasn't gone up in the past i don't know how many months and i get frustrated and i was like, oh i'm not progressing anymore but if i reflect upon my past of course you don't want to use excuse and you don't want to always rely on your past like, oh i did enough today i did more than i did a month ago it's not that but to be able to objectively like, compare achievements and say, hey, I was only able to bench 185 pounds, whatever ago, and now I'm, I'm benching only 190, but guess what? That's still more than 185, I'm still progressing. So I think it's important you said that. And I want to circle back and tie back a little bit more back to the business uh, with Aiden's question. So we talk about this idea of opportunity cost, right? And every decision comes with opportunity cost and, and time always has a constant trade-off. So when you decide to start your startup you know through exposure through your advisory and you thought it was a great idea and this is a great product of course and did you so what were the incentives and motivations that really uh pushed you aside from being accepted into the y combinators factor is it because you really wanted to scale your impact because do you are let me phrase that or do you feel like you can maximize your impact through this product through the startup you're doing because maybe with your brilliance and with your work ethics and your background, you could work at numerous great companies and you could be making a lot of impact, whether through PhD, whether through research or not. So what has that been like versus expectations for reality? Yeah, so um, for me, the reason why I got interested in this initially was because it was pretty similar to the work I was doing in my research lab. And I was always interested in being able to develop tools that would be able to help people, uh, especially in healthcare, um, and using a interdisciplinary background, both engineering and on the science side to be able to develop products that would be, um, you know, benefiting people and especially patient centric. And that's a, you know, important point um, because a lot of our healthcare system is not patient centric. And so um, I was working on, like I mentioned, these smartphone based technologies in lab here at Penn and really the disconnect between actually what we were developing and how physicians would use it 
um, when we talk to physicians, a lot of times they're like, these are things that, you know, these particular biomarkers, for example, like they're very emerging, very new. We don't really understand them yet. And there's a lot of research work that needs to be done before they can be implemented. For my co-founder and I, we wanted to actually you know, develop something that would actually be able to be used now because we saw this gap in being able to allow patients to you know, do testing at home because we'd had family members who suffered from chronic conditions who may have had difficulty you know, getting tested frequently and as a result it lead, led to you know, death or, or you know, worsening of their condition. And so that's a need that we sort of saw and from a technology standpoint it was something we were very interested in, in developing. Um, and so when this opportunity came about, I thought about, okay, I'm working on my PhD versus like working on this. Um, and when I thought about what I wanted to do after I finished my PhD, I said, this is probably something that I would be interested in then. Why wait another five years to build this when it might already be built, um, you know, at that point and I have to look at something else. This is something I was very passionate about doing. And if I have the, the unique opportunity to be able to actually start something that could have a lot of impact at that stage in my career. Um, notwithstanding also the other benefits of having this you know, incredible network of people meeting a lot of really different types of entrepreneurs and, and really growing a lot of skills that I wouldn't have grown in, in my PhD, like being able to talk uh, to other businesses, like whether it's pharmaceutical companies and, and really pitch to executives um, of these public companies and, and convince them that we would be the right partner for certain um, aspects of, of their business and helping improve um, their business. So I think from that standpoint, I looked at both options and I said, here's a way where I'll be able to actually have more immediate impact. Um, and that from a technology standpoint and, and from a company standpoint was why I got started. And then since then, I've really been happy about all the additional benefits that I've gained from it, whether it's being able to be on a podcast like this uh, <laughs> or being able to uh, you know, mentor other people who are in a similar space. And we're by no means, my commander, by no means experts in this area. But what we can do is, you know, talk to other people who were at our stage before and sort of help guide them to what worked for us. Um, as we do with other companies that are at later stages, we talk to the founders there to figure out what worked for them and how they can help us get to the next stages. So I think very much also I, I enjoy being able to mentor and work with other startup founders because it's just really interesting to listen and learn about new technologies. Um, so I think that's another aspect which um, has been a, a great benefit to work in in event. So um, being able to have that immediate impact, um, I think is, is sort of the summary of, of why I you know, took that leave and have you know, unfortunately since dropped out from my program um, and I'm working on this full time. Yeah, so you mentioned next steps, kind of coming from mentors or getting advice from them. What do you see as kind of next steps of Intimed or where are you guys right now looking out? Like what's kind of the horizon looking like for you guys right now? Yeah, so in the next sort of uh, six to nine months, uh, there are a couple of things we're trying to achieve. Um, on the company side, uh, internally, we're looking to bring out a couple more team members on the engineering uh, and science side to really help speed up development of our product. Um, externally, we're looking to uh, grow our partnerships with pharmaceutical companies um, to really grow our, our revenue um, pre-FDA. So what that means is a lot of these pharmaceutical companies um, are interested in, in helping uh, work with us to develop this at-home blood testing product for applications in their space, whether it's for being able to um, allow patients to monitor certain biomarkers that, it, that are tied to their particular drugs, um, or if it's a way to apply the technology during clinical trials 
to better dose drugs early on so they can understand that for patients with X, Y, and Z conditions, um, this is the dosage that works the best. And mm -hmm. the way that could potentially be done is by enabling more frequent testing at home um, for patients instead of having to go into the clinical site during a clinical trial as frequently. Because one of the big issues with pharmaceutical clinical trials is about a third of patients uh, drop out, um, which is very expensive because statistically if you have below the, the target number that you want, that it's not going to be significant, you're going to have to recruit more patients, prolong the trial, the drug takes longer to get to market, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, those are some of the external applications that we're looking at. And then sort of big picture, um, as a company, we're hoping in the next six to nine months to then go out and raise uh, additional funding to really uh, get have the capital to take this product through FDA, um, through not only those clinical trials, but also uh, the clinical trials necessary for um, demonstrating improved outcomes in patients, um, whether it's for guideline-directed therapy uh, in heart failure or um, improved adherence in, in organ transplant patients for testing. Um, so there's a lot of expansion opportunities over the next year that we're pursuing, um, and, uh, and if everything goes well, I think we'll be um, you know, hopefully in clinical trials with the, with the product um, in the next year or so. Um, that's our target. So you kind of gloss over, but I'm very interested in because uh, earlier in the interview, we talked about pharmaceutical industry. And of course, pharmaceutical industry is this monstrosity with corruption and all these labeling and stigmas attached to it. Some may be true, some may be false. And because you have the first experience and scoop of working with FDA through the approval process, trying to get approved or the pre-FDA process, could you walk us through what that is like and maybe unveil some of the perceptions or you know images behind F FDA? Yeah, so I think uh, the sort of common perception people have with the FDA is that they're this big government organization that is out to get companies and to prevent new technologies from coming out into the market. Um, and helping people. It's, it's quite the opposite, actually. They're um, pretty progressive and have become more progressive since um, in being able to really try and usher in new technologies, whether they're uh, just sort of new medical devices, whether it's new algorithms and AI-based uh, technologies that can be incorporated on top of uh, existing things like x-ray machines or MRI machines. Um, and so they're very much, I think, at the forefront of being able to get a lot of these new technologies over the line. And when we met with them, um, in January of 2018 to discuss our product. They're very excited about an at-home blood testing product because they very much care on the patient side as well um, about you know, them being able to get the best care possible. But at the same time, they want to ensure that the product will be safe and easy for patients to use. We'll be able to provide the right data and accurate data. And so all of those things are requirements for getting a product through the FDA, but it's very important to do so. Now, the, on the pharmaceutical side, the process is a lot longer and there are definitely flaws, whether it's like the types of patients that are being studied in clinical trials versus, you know, that are being used in the actual real world population. A lot of times there are certain, um, you know, types of patients uh, who are excluded from trials just because it's easier to recruit other types. Um, and they end up, you know, not being the majority of patients who are using the drug. So you have these issues. Um, that come up afterwards, but I think on a whole, um, I think the FDA definitely holds companies to a high standard to being able to um, make sure that safe and effective products are being brought onto the market. Um, sure, there could be improvements, but I think uh, the conception of them is, is miscued, and I think uh, being able to 
work side by side with them has been a big focus for us rather than trying to find ways to, to get around those issues and, and see them as an enemy. We, we see them more as a partner uh, in getting our product safely to market. I love it. And that's definitely important because obviously it is, I think I've heard a big conception or perception of the FDA is the time spent. I'm sure it takes a lot of time and money to get something from an idea to an approved product, but they are ultimately taking on a big responsibility in making sure that a product is not only safe, but also reliable and, you know, not harming anyone in the process. Like that's a big undertaking and responsibility for one specific uh, organization to take on. So I kind of, especially after, you know, what you just uh, shared with us, it definitely makes sense that it is a long process that takes a lot because it's a large responsibility. So um, as you're looking towards the other side of that, you mentioned that you could see more personalized, um, personalized results from the product. What would that kind of look like? Like they would have the blood uh, levels read and then a recommended solution or medicine, or what would that kind of overall vision be? Yeah, so the overall vision is some, something like that. I mean, basically, we have to take it in, in layers because of the regulation and the way that the workflow is currently. So initially, what we envision our product being is simply just doing the testing, allowing patients to do the testing at home with that data then being sent to the provider or nurse, whoever's managing the patient, uh, to be able to say, okay, this patient needs a therapy change based on the results. Let, let's change it to this or that, and then you call them and, and make that change. Ultimately, our vision is to be able to have that not really include necessarily need to include the physician, because a lot of these medication changes are fairly straightforward. Um, you know, and, and I think as we collect more data on different types of patients, we'll be able to essentially democratize um, the way certain treatments are done. So for example, if you know, a physician at Stanford where they have um, really good treatment for heart failure patients um, is doing this pr particular type of protocol with their patients that's being very effective, that same type of protocol and the uh, certain actions that that physician is doing can be recommended to a physician in like rural Alabama um, who may not have the same level of training and expertise in that particular condition. And so being able to use that data that we're collecting and say like, you know, a thousand patients were following this protocol and 950 of them were able to have improved outcomes because they followed this protocol. Mm -hmm. Something like that, where then we would be able to recommend that same protocol to other healthcare systems and other particular people managing patients who may not be as experienced. That really is our, our vision in being able to allow a lot of these protocolized based healthcare uh, models to be able to be expanded because a lot of times you'll see at academic centers they're able to have really good outcomes and results but that's because what they're doing and the resources they have are not scalable to other places mm -hmm. and if we're able to make those uh, protocols and the way they manage patients more scalable then we could see a, a dramatic improvement in uh, how patients are managed across the country and and ultimately, even in the world, um, as we're able to bring the costs down to make it um, affordable and accessible in other countries. That's really powerful, man, because it seems like you're using a specific micro product to kind of solve or at least help fight against a systemic issue of that 
accessibility of information, right? So as much as it is a product for what you said, kind of full circle, it's the accessibility of information, making sure that the hospitals, the providers, everyone's kind of in the same in the same loop of what can best be used. So um, as you're, you know, three years into this entrepreneurship journey, do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs, whether it's just getting started or kind of as they're battling through the struggles that I'm sure are inevitable with building a business, any, you know, first advice or insights into that? Yeah, I think uh, really the main thing is make sure you're working on something that you're very passionate about because it's going to inevitably, regardless of the type of company, be a pretty hard journey to get where you want to get. Um, and there are going to be times where you'll definitely feel down for, for some time um, because things aren't working for whatever reason. And you'll look into yourself and say, like, is this something I really want to be doing? And you may lose motivation because of the difficulties that are associated with it. But then you need to think about if this is something that I really, really want to do and I really want to see exist in the world, in our case, uh, for our product, we want to see this be in every person's home um, and allow you know, patients to be able to do this monitoring easily and simply. Um, that's something which you know, keeps us pushing forward. And, and certainly, you know, on our company, um, we've had plenty of downs. And especially in this industry, um, I anticipate we'll have many more that come up in, in the future. But being able to you know, have that single-handed focus that this is a product we're going to get to market and we're going to do everything we can to be able to do that, whether it means you know spending weeks meeting or months or or you know years meeting with investors to try and get them on board, whether it means paying yourself minimal uh, to make sure that your team is able to um, you know be compensated the way they should and are able to you know continue working hard. Um, there are going to be sacrifices you're going to have to make, um, but if it's something you truly believe in um, and you're very passionate about, then you should certainly try and work on it. And at a certain point, I think. Working on it full time um, makes the most sense, but I don't think you need to. I think a lot of times at these accelerator programs and things, they'll tell you like you need to be working full time on this or you're not committed. I think what we were talking about even at the beginning, calculated risks are are very important, and being able to think about your situation um, and what you're working on and thinking about when you really want to take that leap. Um, but I don't think rushing into it is is necessary. But I think making sure that if you are going to be doing whatever you're doing, making sure that it's something you're really passionate about because there's going to be a lot of times where you're going to be questioning yourself and, and whether this is the right thing to do. Um, and if you don't have that strong conviction, you're kind of going to just leave it. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that I would say just pick something that you're really excited about working on um, and and go for it. Uh, I have a question. So could I ask you about like the uh, profitability aspect of your oh, business? What? Profitability. Oh, okay. Because yeah, yeah. so if you look at a company like Twenty Three and Me, right? Yeah. And and we work. Yeah, and we work. <laughs> yeah. so 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 yeah. a lot of people, including ourselves, have a misconception about evaluation versus their actual like profitability. Mm -hmm. So just because a company's evaluated a certain dollar amount doesn't mean that's how much their net profit is, right? Yeah. Like for example, Twenty Three and Me, I know their evaluation is at five billion dollars right now, mm -hmm. and then the founder of Twenty Three and Me, she talked about. She also has a huge connection with Google, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah small world. To... And so she talks about, yeah, people think, yeah, 23andMe, they're worth, they're evaluated at $5 billion, yeah. and people think they make $5 billion doing 23andMe. And she's like, that is absurd. That is not, she's saying, like, they're not even profitable yet. Yeah. They're not making money at all because money has to go back into to re renovate, to, to improve the process, to make it more efficient, optimal, whatever that may be. Is that a similar case for you? 
of of course at a like smaller scale size are you actually being profitable are you still work are you still operating on like the fundraising um yeah for us it's gonna be i mean we could insert like we could make our company profitable in certain ways like if we scale that like if it was just my co-founder and i and we like we're executing on like the contracts we have we could like easily make it profitable but that's not how we'll grow the company and so i think the most important thing that investors should evaluate when looking at profitability is what the path to profitability looks like so if you look at like a company like uber i mean i think their idea of how they've become profitable was when they have self-driving cars where you yep. don't have to pay drivers yep but that's still a ways away and we work i'm not really sure what their what was going to be profitable about we work like what they were going to say that like i like i think just a lot of invest like even on wall street like people i mean investors will invest for growth and if the company's growing fast rather than it just being profitable um but i think we're coming to a point now where like there are these companies like uber and we work on who are like there's no sign of profitability in like the near term um unless and the problem is like if you need to scale down like what they're saying with we work they should scale down the company and become profitable if you need to scale down to become profitable then the business model is not scalable um, and i think that like when you're evaluating any company you'll need to look at like where a lot of the money is being reinvested like for example like amazon aws is super profitable for them um, whereas like their main marketplace is like small profit um, whereas like a hardware company like apple are super profitable so it depends also on the industry like for us we could be very profitable um, in the long term because the unit economics will be good. But in the short term, it's all about also reinvesting the money into growing the team. So like, for example, with pharma contracts, like there's one we're in the process of finalizing, which after we complete, if we complete the first milestone successfully, we'll get a much larger payment after, like the first, first payment's pretty small, second payment would be pretty significant. And then we would basically use that to hire another person or to, to devote like 50% of their time to that project and then another half to like our internal development. Um, or we would use it to like build out more space or things like that. So there's a lot of those things where like you can think about, do you want to focus on profitability initially? Um, which you can if you're in a software company where like the unit economics can be positive from day one, which I think in a lot of software companies that should be an earlier focus but for things that like us where it requires a lot more uh regulatory oversight hardware development it will take a little bit of time um but as long as like the unit economics makes sense the gross margins make sense then there should be no reason why it isn't um doesn't become profitable but i think the other thing is with like these other companies is they could achieve like uber and WeWork. they could achieve um, positive unit economics, but would their business still be successful? Like, if you had to pay double what you pay for Ubers right now, and they could be profitable, would mm -hmm. you pay for that? Nope. No. Yeah. We'll Probably. call the cap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, the business model that they start with has to be something which, by like long term, can be successful. But like, I think Uber was just and Lyft even like both are sort of banking on just being able to uh, have self driving cars where. Yeah, obviously then you'll be very profitable because there's no one you have to pay. Mm -hmm. So like they could even charge the consumers a lot lower even and it'd be you know, still profitable. But that seems like it's definitely still a ways away.
um, when we'll actually have like self-driving cars just seems to go farther and farther away um, mm-hmm. when it just because yeah. like there's so many edge cases that like you need to have done which are yeah just a lot a lot of a lot of loops to yeah uh, come through yeah because when you think about entrepreneurship right yeah. you have all these things you hear about like oh work ethics uh, you can you can sleep when you're dead like grind don't stop yeah, all these right. all yeah, these things are just 24 7 <laughs> work 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 yeah. grind grind it's about the hustle yeah. like making it's, it's, you're investing in your future you know <laughs> by sacrificing your present all that yeah. right and you hear about all these things and of course like, many of them are true but what are the like what are some things that you've learned firsthand that like nobody ever talks about about entrepreneurship like what are the yeah. potential dark sides yeah i mean i think people just like with entrepreneurship think like that's like a great way to then make a lot of money and like it's just not like you're gonna be making very little money for a long time and like hopefully it becomes successful and then like you will you know get the benefit from that but starting a company is not really a good way to if you want to make a lot of money i don't think it's like a really good way to do it i would say probably the best way is to join a company that is at like a sort of late stage like series b series c that you think has a really high growth trajectory um and you'll get some small equity stake in the company but they're at a point where you would still get paid well but you would also get equity that could be worth a lot you know in in the future um but i think like starting an early stage company like starting your own company is just like for us we we didn't really pay ourselves until we yeah we started paying ourselves about a year in after we had raised our seed round of funding. And that was like, just like, I mean, even now, like sort of what you can live on. We've increased our salaries like a little bit more, but like, it's still like well below any of our employees or things. Cause it's just like, we want to see the company succeed. And if it succeeds, then we'll, you know, get benefit from that. But like, you have to sacrifice some stuff in the near term. And I think a lot of, and even Peter Thiel says this, I think in, there was an article in, you know, about how he can sort of tell for certain companies if they're going to be successful and i was like based on the salary of the founders like are you take like we could definitely pay ourselves a ton more and like it's fine like because we get to do whatever we want with the money but then it's just like in the short term like we can't accomplish like in the short term it's fine but in the long term then you're like hindering the goals for the company that you want to you know achieve um so i think it's just like that comes down to mindset and what like how invested you are in the company um and, uh, and like, if you're, it's kind of like if you're a founder and you're like selling all your stock, like if you're rather cash out now, then like, why would an investor want to come in and invest if you don't have faith in the company? Um, so it's like why Jeff Bezos had like such a large amount, but if he were to sell any of his shares, like, or a significant amount, then it's going to like go down a lot. So yeah, I would say like the main thing is just like, it's not like if you want to make money, it's like just there are other things you can do. Then do it for the glamour. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, I know I'm saying this because I have friends who like wanted to start companies and they did start companies. And like, I knew from the start, like they were, it ties also to this, like working on something you're passionate about. Like it wasn't really something they were that passionate about. And like, they were also trying to start this company on the side while working trading and like banking. Um, and like, he was making a lot of money doing that. And so, like, he slowly was like, oh, this is actually a lot of work, like, doing the startup. And, like, he was spent some time on it for, like, working on business plan, all this stuff for, like, like a good six months. And then, like, 
got his bonus and his job. He's like, oh, I'm just, <laughs> like, just going to stay, like, working on this, and I'm going to try and, like, when I get to, like, age whatever, I'm going to try and retire and then spend time on other things. But, like, it's kind of like, do you want to also spend your prime younger years doing something you don't like? Because, like, I think a lot of times people will do that, and then, like, when they get to, like, 35 or 40 or whatever, they're like, I wasted all that time, and now, like, I have enough money, but, like, what do I want to actually do? Like, what's going to be fulfilling? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, like, you could spend that time doing something fulfilling, and, yeah, that's, I mean, that's why you guys left your jobs. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I can relate, because, like, my friend's brother talked about who uh, found the fan camp. He, so, when... He, he was one of my best friends from high school. Like, yeah. he, was, he was my best friend from high school. We drifted apart because, like, different cities and yeah. stuff. And when he told me that, he's like, yeah, my brother's startup just raised a hit $10 million capital for fundraising rounds, whatever. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, what car does your brother drive now, you know? Yeah. He's like, oh, he just bought a used 2008 Prius. Yeah. And I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. And he was uh, deconstructing about how his brother and his co-founder, two of them, have uh, took on one percent salary, so whatever yeah. that uh, annual a profit net profit is, they're only gonna take one percent, yeah. which was so for them at the time for two three years they were living on like thirty five thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's and, pretty much. And they were in yeah. California in yeah. San Diego. Yeah, that, yeah. So I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And yeah. their office was pretty big. I visited their office before. Yeah. I think they had like fifty or like thirty to forty fifty People? employees. Yeah. And I was like, yo, that's, that's like this is great. Like yeah. this is a pretty big startup. Yeah. And then you see like like the founders, the CEO are yeah. driving like a used beat down <laughs> Prius yeah. with you know like the, the Prius with stickers in the back to yeah. cover up all the dents and bumps. <laughs> right, right, right. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And but you're right, exactly right. Yeah. And if there aren't because I think people start because entrepreneurship is, is such a glamour cool thing now. Yeah. And oh fast track to success. You want buy a freedom and liberty back what do you do boom entrepreneurship yeah i'm gonna be my own boss uh work on the beach in croatia you know i'm floating on the, on the yacht and because yeah. I, I think it's important to like you talked about it's important to have enough income to be sustainable to yeah, stay yeah, afloat because yeah. yeah. you don't want to yeah you want to have enough fucking, you're not going to be stressed yeah eat on ramen on yeah. a daily basis yeah. but of course don't buy into that like lavish fancy lifestyle yeah so, yeah like cool. for me like you know, we have employees who are married or, you know, I mean, yeah, multiple employees who are married and, like, one of them who's going to be having a kid soon. Like, we don't want, you know, we want to make sure that they're in a comfortable situation. And, like, my co-founder and I, like, we don't have really any commitments or anything. Like, so we have the flexibility to, like, you know, take on less money. And, like, and we're also, you know, significantly younger than some of the other people. So, like, they're at a point in their career where, like, you know, this is an important, I mean, it's important for us, but, like, this is something where they're, you know, going to be saving up for their family and like these types of things. And so we want to make sure that like we can give to them first. And like for us also like hitting milestones with the company is more fulfilling than just having more money. Like, it's not like I'm going to, I like, I don't think if I was making twice as much as I'm making now, I don't think I would really change my lifestyle. Like maybe I would eat out at restaurants more, (laughs) get sushi more or something, but like, I'm not going to like, I probably am not going to really travel more just because it's like, I mean, I should, but also like, it's hard to like leave work. And work like, don't stop, baby. Yeah. It's about the grind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like hard to like, even if you go somewhere else, you can't get away from like, you know, doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. at some point we'll, we would be in a position where like we can do that. But like right now I would feel like 
I still there needs to be stuff that I'm doing because like we both my company I feel like if we're not you know working on this like it's not moving forward enough and like we have now employees who are like doing a lot of the lab work and stuff so we don't have to do that as much but like it's still you feel like if you're not there to provide guidance you're not there to like keep up with everything then it just you feel like uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, it needs so. to get done at some point or another yeah it's and easier like the, to do it in and the sooner yeah the sooner you do it yeah yeah, yeah the better and it. like that's one of the reasons why i moved to philly from silicon valley was because of the cost like so we can mm. i mean it's literally the salaries you can pay someone are like half and the the um like the living situation and stuff um is like the same or better probably mm-hmm. better actually yeah. like for like in SF, like the minimum one bedroom apartment costs like two thousand a month. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Whereas yeah. like here, you can have like I mean, two thousand a month for a one bedroom. Like would be like at the top yeah. of like wherever in center city. Yeah, yeah. house, written house. Or yeah, something. exactly. So because yeah. I think people think financial freedom means how much you make, but it's yeah. about how much you spend. Yeah. So it's just about like don't live above your means, live humbly, or not even humbly, just yeah. live within your means. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So Anoop, so it sounds like uh, your mission statement for your company is to scaling the personalized experience for the patients, right? It's about being patient-centric and you're trying to scale that to a point that it could service and benefit as many wide range of patients as possible. And so it goes back to the question of FDA approval. So you see all these products in the healthcare industry or just in the in the world generally with FDA approved, FDA approved or not FDA approved. My question is, are all products that as long as you're servicing patients have to be get FDA approved or what does that process ease look like for the people? Cause I'm not very familiar with the uh, industry at all. So with the FDA process, one of the big uh, aspects of it is what the indications for use are for the device. So if you have a device that you're saying it will, for example, like our device, um, if it's testing people's blood and just the indications for use are, we will provide an information set that says your cholesterol level is either high or low. That bar to get that clearance, you just need to show that in samples that are high, you show it's high, and samples that are low, you show it's low. In our case, we want to be able to provide quantitative information. So we want to be able to show that it's not high or low, we want to show the exact number because that's what would be actionable. Uh, not, not cholesterol in our case, but that's just an example. And so. A lot of devices that may sort of sidestep the FDA process are really limiting the indications for use that they can do. Um, And I think the other aspect which makes it a little bit harder now with emerging technologies is a lot of applications, like phone applications. There's a a gray area in terms of what should and shouldn't be regulated. Um, But I think the, the biggest thing is really what the product is claiming it can do. So if you're claiming that you can do something just very simple, then the FDA process may not be that rigorous. But if you're claiming you can do something you know, very substantial, um, if it's like an implantable device, for example, they need to show biocompatibility, and they need to show that long-term it's not gonna have cause, like, you know, it's not gonna put lead in your blood or something like that. Um, so basically, it just comes down to what the indications for use are, and that's really the crux of, of your FDA submission and the studies you need to do uh, to fulfill the FDA submission. Yeah, because I know with uh, 23andMe, I know the company as a whole went through some uh, FDA, of course, FDA approved. I know they had to kind of change their service model because they had to agree that uh, you you can only provide a DNA records and history for ancestry without showing like indications for possible like different treatments of what diseases in your system. 
So I, I learned a little bit of the process from that. So, uh, so some products are FDA approved and some products aren't, and we see both of them products on the market, right? And so I'm wondering, does FDA approval means a higher quality for that product, or is it a mandated requirement that every uh, qualified product has to uh, jump through? So it depends on the product, um, but there are certain products that will say FDA approved, but really what matters is what it's approved for. Um, so for example, like our product, it can be, a, we can say FDA approved, it could be approved only for in-hospital use. It can be approved only for um, laboratory use. It can, you know, it can be approved for patient self-use. There are different layers. And so like, for example, if it was for patient self-use, the bar is much higher because it's much harder for a patient to use the device than it is for a healthcare professional who has you know, training and experience. And so the same goes for you know, these other products where it'll say FDA approved. And oftentimes companies will use that as sort of a you know, sort of standard because you know, someone who doesn't know about the process will be like, oh, it's an FDA approved treatment, looks good. But what you need to look in more depth about is what it's approved for. Like what are those indications um, that they're claiming and what the data that supports that uh, shows. That's, that's all really the FDA comes down to is that whatever you're trying to claim the product does, you have data to support that it does that. So it sounds like learning about the FDA procedures and then to learn about all the multi-layered processes is part of a many skill sets you picked up along the way of this three-year entrepreneurship journey of yours. Could you tell us uh, and the audiences about some other very invaluable skill sets you picked up that are absolutely necessitate your daily procedure, your daily operation of running this uh, pretty successful startup company? I think one of the important things, especially for like a deep tech so-called company where you're developing uh, new IP and, and new types of technologies, uh, is being able to convey what you're doing, and especially the science, um, to a variety of different audiences. And so um, when I was working on my PhD and even before that in, in undergrad, most of the research presentations that I did was to a primarily scientific audience. And so that's traditionally whether it's at a conference or whether it's just to your lab um, or to you know whatever groups of, of folks you're presenting to. In the academic setting, it's primarily to other people with science backgrounds. Whereas in contrast, um, when you're working at a startup, you need to be able to articulate the value proposition, articulate how the technology works to a variety of different audience members. So whether it's investors, whether it's a uh, presentation to a healthcare system, whether it's to people in the FDA, um, and whether it's on this podcast. You know, being able to make sure that people understand the problem you're trying to solve, you can give analogies to things that they would be able to understand. Um, those are, are really important. So, and I, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to be in those positions, you know, giving talks about our product in applications to space health, um, at space conferences, you know, at pharmaceutical conferences, um, to even um, you know, younger audience members, people in high school and middle school. So being able to tailor the presentation, be able to talk about the technology and what you're doing to a variety of different audience members really is, is a fundamental um, aspect of, of what you're doing. And I think that helps you really better understand yourself what you're actually trying to do, what value you actually are trying to provide. Because a lot of times people who come from the academic setting to start companies are very much into the science and bogged down by the science. And uh, oftentimes, you know, that stuff is very exciting, but when you get to in the company level, it's about you know, the practicality of it. So the science may be awesome, but if, you know, invest, uh, insurance companies are not gonna pay for the product that has really awesome science, then it doesn't matter. So really trying to understand how you can articulate the value proposition 
in a way that resonates with both scientists and non-scientists and uh, all different types of audiences. Yeah, that seems invaluable kind of in regardless of science related or anything. It's kind of looking at, I guess, audience first and kind of seeing what they're looking for and how to best deliver that information to them. So in all of these groups that you were interacting with, which do you think was the most difficult to, I guess, convince of your value proposition or to communicate with? And kind of how did you alter your message to connect with what they were looking for? Yeah, so I think with uh, scientists, it's hard because they're naturally always skeptical. Um, and so the things that we've really tried to do as a company, uh, two main things. One is uh, publish papers on our technology. So anyone in the academic setting who's a scientist loves publications. That's like their currency. And mm -hmm. so being able to sh not only say, hey, that you know we've developed this technology, but here's data that we publish in a peer-reviewed journal where other scientists looked at it, reviewed it, and said this looks good. Um, that is a, a key aspect, and especially uh, nowadays in light of what happened with Theranos and, and you know, other companies um, where there was a lot of smoke and mirrors, being able to uh, be transparent about the technology um, and making sure that um, whoever the audience is, especially scientists who are often skeptical, will be able to understand that like, there is something real here. The science is work. You know, they can read a paper and see how it works. Um, that I think is, you know, from a layperson standpoint, um, I think it's a pretty easy sell. Like I think, like I was talking about before, for blood testing, if, if you're choosing between doing something at home with a very small amount of blood versus waiting at a lab core quest or wherever um, and, you know, getting drawn, uh, getting a lot, large amount of blood drawn, I think it's a kind of a no-brainer. But when you, mm -hmm. you know, dive deeper into how you're able to, um, you know, make that product actually work well, then, then you have more skeptics and you need to um, have a higher level of evidence that you need to present. No, that's awesome. Yeah, um, so sorry, when you guys were talking, I was on my phone because I really wanted to look up a quote. Uh, it was one of my favorite quotes. I didn't want to butcher the quote, but I think it alludes perfectly to what you talked about and summarizes the best skill set, I would say. is the, uh, So Bruce Lee said this, the height of cultivation runs to simplicity. And like you said, uh, it's, it's, your, it's that ability of yours to be able to summarize complex information into easily digestible format right because like you said you have to sell you have to present this to many different uh, audiences some are experts like yourself and some aren't like us we know nothing about fda we know nothing about the um, uh, medical industry we know nothing about the products that you are uh, going to present prior to our podcast so now i really appreciate that advice and i think that speaks uh, a lot of volume on itself is how to uh, be able to, you know, just refinery and simplicity all together. So anything else you'd like to talk about or add? Maybe a quick plugging session if that floats your boat? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, um, you know, people are interested in, you know, working on a startup company or have any questions about um, what we're doing, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. Um, my email is anoop at inamed.com. Um, and uh, if you're, you know, like what you hear, subscribe. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, thank you guys for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for joining. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, good luck with everything in your company, and good luck with your next fundraising session for the next six to nine months. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify every Monday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Follow us on Instagram at Discover More Podcast. And please... Share this with your friends and everyone that you know. Thanks for listening to another episode of Discover More.
where we intend to discover more life through intentional dialogues. And we truly appreciate everyone who have made it until the end. Till next month.